Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Of all the legends from the days of gunslingers and desperados, no one fires our collective imagination more than Billy the Kid. Now, maybe that's because no outlaw better blurred the lines between good and bad. He's actually going to jail, and he's probably going to be hanged. And yet he's, he's laughing about it. From his point of view, he would have been killed within a matter of days if he hadn't killed them first. But at the same time, I think... That's not a justification for murder. If the law had not been so incredibly corrupt, mm -hmm. he wouldn't be in this situation. The kid had learned a hard truth about the way the world worked in New Mexico. Just a few years earlier, he'd been a skinny orphan boy from New York City. Calling themselves the regulators, they vowed to dispense their own brand of justice. Now, Billy was the most feared man in New Mexico. One of the things about the kid, he was able to deceive people. He was able to get them to think that he was inconsequential. And the sheriff returns to the jail, and there's no kid. The cell's empty. The hallway's empty. With that jailbreak, he's a wanted man at the age of 16. Law completely broke down in Lincoln County. There was really no semblance of law and order. Every son of a bitch up there wanted to kill somebody. He's the only one of the soldiers that was in every single skirmish. Every fight, every face-off, every no-you-don't, he was there. And he just kept getting better at it. Billy had one capacity above others, and that was loyalty. He was extremely loyal. He was loyal to everyone who, who would give him that chance to be loyal. The New York Times. He was even in the London Times. Big towns, small towns. So he became an absolute icon of American outlawry. The people he's connected to who, who might have been able to, to help him and might have been able to give him a job or, or get him up the ladder are being killed. Billy was always looking for a family. He wanted a home. And that's the one thing that he never really had and couldn't get. He's trying not to be on the run. He's trying to go straight. Hey, let's quit this. Let me, let me live a life. Damn it, I'm not 20 years of age yet. I don't want to be dead. Well, the kid backs away from him and backs away from him and finally backs into the doorway. And from inside the room, he's framed in the light, the moonlight. And Garrett is sitting on the bed with Pete Maxwell. Maxwell leaned over and said, It's him. And Garrett took his gun and blasted. And there fell dead. Billy the Kid, right on that floor. The Hispanos would have seen in the kid a person who was fighting their enemies. The people he was fighting against, even the ones who were on the side of the law, were crooks. 
These were not fine, outstanding citizens who were being gunned down. He was engaging against people who had stolen a whole country. He was engaging against people who had stolen their land. They loved the kid. New Mexicans felt that he was one of us. That was Henry McCarty that died. That was Billy Bonnie that died. Billy the kid rode on, and he rides on forever. The definition of ethical relativism is the theory that holds that morality is relative to the norms of one's culture. That is, whether an action is right or wrong depends on the moral norms of the society in which it is practiced. The same action may be morally right in one society, but be morally wrong in another. Now the reason I read that is because your boy here, Justin, did go to college for a short amount of time. I ended up dropping out because I fucking hated it. But my major was philosophy. What intrigues us so much about the American Wild West? People from a lot of other countries probably don't get it. And I'm not saying that to offend anybody, alright? It was called the Wild West because it was that. It was wild. It was untamed. It was free. People literally dropped everything that they had and left everything that they knew to go west because they wanted a new life. They were willing to risk everything. It's the place where dreams were born and where people were killed on a regular basis. Was murder in the American Wild West acceptable? No, not by any means. Was it an everyday thing? Yes, it was. There was not much law out there, so everybody had to fend for themselves. The reason I'm saying all this is because I'm not trying to make this guy out as a hero. But you have to understand, this was a different time. It was a lawless country. It was literally every man for himself. This young man was orphaned at 15 years old. He had nobody. He had nothing. And in many cases, he was a victim of circumstance. But the one thing that he did have that not many others did was loyalty. He was loyal to a point of fault. The people who showed him respect, he showed that respect right back. If you gave him a chance to be loyal, he would be the most loyal friend you would ever have. Now, I always loved all the stories of the old gunslingers from the American Wild West. Because I grew up out in the country, in the Midwest. I got my first BB gun when I was about 8. I got my first shotgun when I was about 10, just for rabbit hunting. It was a pretty badass break-action single-shot 410. But the thing about it is, growing up around big faded red barns with white trim, literally walking out your back door and spending all day in the woods, doing whatever you wanted, it was the freedom. But when we'd go outside and play, we wouldn't pretend we were bankers. We wouldn't pretend we were lawyers. We wouldn't pretend that we were on TV. I'll tell you who I pretended I was. I pretended I was William Henry McCarty, alias William Antrim, alias Kid Antrim, 
alias William H. Bonnie, alias Billy the Kid. Yoo-hoo! I'll make you famous. Before we get started on this uh, Billy the Kid episode, part one, where we were going to separate fact from myth in his life, and uh, that'll eventually lead us to part two, where we are going to discuss his uh, death and whether or not he was really shot by Pat Garrett in 1881 in Fort Sumner. Uh, Before that, I do have to give some thanks. Thank you to Lauren and Randy for your uh, generous donations. I would like to thank Betty as well for her uh, donation. Now I suppose we are going to jump on in to this uh, Billy the Kid episode. So the best part about researching Billy the Kid is the fact that not even historians can agree on his early years. So what I had to do was I had to research all kinds of different shit and I kind of put it all together and I went by what historians would say the most of. So basically, if five historians said this and three historians said that, I'm going to go with what the five agreed on. So this is pretty much what I came up with. And I will tell you right now, after researching Billy the Kid, I have a whole new respect for this guy, man. I truly do. Yeah, he was, at times, a cold-blooded murderer. As you're going to find out, he was a victim of circumstance more often than not. It's really interesting. So, let's go ahead and get rolling here. Now, he was supposedly born William Henry McCarty Jr., and he was born in either 1859 or 1861. They believe his birthday is November 23rd, and they say that he was born in New York. His father is unknown. His mother was Catherine McCarty, who was an Irish immigrant who came to America during the Great Potato Famine over in Ireland. Now, he did have a brother who was named Joe. Um, Joe... Even historians can't agree on when he was born. His death certificate says he was born in 1854, which would make him older than Billy. But Joe himself, and there are documents that correlate with this, uh, says he was born in 1863, which would make him Billy's younger brother. Now, they can't agree on whether Billy was born in New York or if he was born in Anderson, Indiana, which is just kick-ass in my book because I'm from Indiana, so. The reason they think he was born in New York is because, ironically enough, in 1861, there is a kid that shows up getting a baptism that is going by the name Henry McCarty. Now, they're not 100% sure if this is him, though, because his father is unknown. There's so many stories about his father It is suspected that his dad was a guy named Michael McCarty who had died in the Civil War. 
that's unconfirmed. It is also stated that they believe um, young William McCarty might have been an illegitimate child. And where this comes from is Catherine, his mother, uh, when historians would try to talk to her family, her surviving family, about her, they literally would change the subject and would not really acknowledge her. So that would kind of give the idea that maybe these kids were illegitimate. Now, we do not know that. Um, even his birthday of November 23rd is not certain. The only person that said his birthday was on November 23rd was in Pat Garrett's biography of Billy the Kid, and I believe it was titled The Authentic Authentic Life of Billy the Kid. The thing about it is, is his co-author on this book, that person's birthday just so happens to be on November 23rd as well. So, they think they really didn't know, and they just kind of inserted that birthday in there and just... Everybody accepted it as fact, so we really don't know. Most historians will say that he was born on November 23rd, 1859, in New York. Now, where Indiana comes into play is this is the first official record per a census in Anderson, Indiana, on June 18th, 1868. There was a census taken, like I said, and uh, Catherine McCarty does show up. And she states that she has two boys that go by William Henry McCarty and Joseph McCarty. While they are living in Anderson, Indiana, this is where Catherine meets a guy named William Antrim. Uh, she pretty much has like a laundry business. She's washing people's clothes. She's baking stuff. She's pretty much trying to get by any way that she can. William Antrim, not much is known about his past up until he comes into contact with Catherine. He really doesn't care about the boys too much. Young Joseph and William, he really, you know, he just kind of wanted Catherine. And as we're going to come to find out, William Antrim was probably not the best husband or father figure that these boys could have had. Now, they are going through a courtship for a couple years. On August 10th, 1870, they moved their little family to Wichita, Kansas. Actually, it was right outside of Wichita, Kansas. And Catherine is actually in the papers here. This is documented. Um, she is a business leader. She opens up her laundry business again. And uh, she's doing pretty well for herself. But this is also around the time that she is diagnosed with consumption, which is also known as tuberculosis at the t at the time, uh, the infection of the lungs. So she needs to move to a less humid climate. They need to go to somewhere dry and possibly warmer. So in August of 1871, they leave for a drier climate because of the consumption. Uh, the next time we see them pop up, is in Denver, Colorado, in October of 1872. Now, they really weren't there too long from what I could find out because they later end up moving to Santa Fe. And how we know this is because on March 1st, 1873, William Antrim and Catherine McCarty are married in Santa Fe, where little Billy was a witness and he signed the marriage certificate as the witness he signed it to little harry mccarty which is fucking adorable absolutely adorable i don't even know why but 
So from here on, um, she's still doing her business. She, you know, she's washing clothes. She's baking stuff for people. Now, right around this time in April of 1873, they moved the Antrim family to Silver City, New Mexico. Now, William wants to start work as a prospector. There's silver mines popping up everywhere. Everybody's wanting to get their riches. Um, so they do settle in Silver City. Catherine starts washing clothes. She starts baking, selling those baked goods, and she even takes on boarders uh, in her house to make ends meet. William, on the other hand, is pretty much uh, a piece of shit. He is running around. Uh, he's never, never really around. He's always trying to make his riches. He's off in the silver mines. Um, what? Ever little money he does make, he spends, he has a gambling addiction, he's a heavy drinker, and like I said, he really doesn't, doesn't care too much. Dude's just not around. But Billy and Joe, on the other hand, are doing fairly well. Um, Billy is doing good in school. His personality starts coming out right about now, and from schoolmates that did go to school with, uh, young William McCarty, they said his personality was kick-ass. He just was happy-go-lucky, real carefree. Um, it is said that he had like a little bit of protruding buck teeth, but he was still a ladies' man because of that personality. Everybody got along with him really, really well. Um, another thing that the, that we did find out is that he's a hell of a dancer because picture this if you can. Young Billy the Kid is a dancer because him and his mom used to go to, you know, town dances. She taught him how to dance. So this kind of helped his reputation of being a little bit of a ladies' man. They, The girls did love him. And uh, like I said, everything's going great. You know, this kind of gets bad um, around September of 1874. After four months of bed rest because of her consumption... On September 16th, 1874, Catherine dies from her consumption, also known as tuberculosis. William Antrim was not around when his wife died. He was off doing whatever the hell he was doing, you know, basically being a, a piece of shit. But before she does die, she arranges for the boys to be taken in by a neighbor of hers. That right there is just crazy admirable in in my eyes because this woman's working three different jobs taking care of these two boys raising little gentlemen for the most part and her husband's off whatever her husband doesn't even come back to her fucking for her funeral okay so they get taken in by this neighbor what happens is when William Antrim ends up coming back and finding out that his wife died he pretty much does not want anything to do with these boys. He doesn't want anything dragging him down. He doesn't want anything to do with them. So he takes off for Clifton, Arizona and leaves the boys behind. Now, at this point, this death of his mother just devastated Billy. All right. Like this was his rock. This was the one person in his life that was stationary, that that loved him unconditionally, that was always there for him. And she's gone. He gets pushed off to a neighbor's house, and he's not doing bad, but obviously he's dealing with some shit. He's just a young kid at this point in time. He's, you know, 13 years old. 
Now, while he was living with these uh, neighbors, he does, in early of 1875, get his first arrest. And believe it or not, he gets arrested for stealing butter from a rancher and trying to sell it to a local merchant. Now, because Billy is friends with the with the sheriff's kid, and his name was Sheriff Whitehill, you know, they ran around together and stuff, all he gets is a little bit of some verbal discipline. You know, the sheriff's like, hey, you know, this ain't the road you want to go down. You know, we're not going to, you know, get you in too much trouble. Just get your shit together. Quit stealing stuff. You know, that's pretty much how it ended up. Now, at this point in time, he is also pretty much bouncing around to different houses, different little foster homes. He has no stationary place to live. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that, you know, he's trying to make a living. He's, he's on his own at, you know, 13, 14 years old. So he starts getting into a little bit of more trouble. And on September 23rd, 1875, young William Henry McCarty is arrested again, this time for stealing laundry. Now, I have heard a couple different variations of this story. Now, here's the first version of the story that we have. Billy the Kid ends up meeting with this guy named Sombrero Fucking Jack. Shit you not, that's the name that this guy goes by. He's pretty much a local hoodlum, whatever. Now, Sombrero Jack has Billy steal these clothes from a local Chinaman. Now, unfortunately, this was a different time, and the whole thinking process behind this was that if they stole from this guy, the local authorities probably wouldn't really care too much because he was a foreigner. Unfortunately, that was the mindset in this time. It was a different era. And, uh, you know, if they would have gotten caught, then Billy wouldn't have really gotten in trouble because he was still just a young kid. Now, he was supposed to take these clothes, hide them, and then meet up with Sombrero Jack later and give him the clothes. And, uh, supposedly he had stolen a couple pistols as well. That is unconfirmed. I only heard that in a couple places. But the other story that I heard is that, uh, basically Sombrero Jack stole the clothes. And he told Billy that he would give him some clothes. If he ended up getting caught, then Billy would take the fall. Well, Billy's living in a boarding house at this point in time. And he does end up getting caught. Um, the lady who is running the house comes in to check on his room, clean his room or whatever, finds the clothes, reports it to the local authorities. The local authority just happens to be Sheriff Whitehill, who had arrested Billy previously. So he is, you know, familiar with him. He knows Billy. You know, that's pretty much how that went down. Now, what they do is he kind of wants to prove a point to Billy. So he arrests him and he puts him in a jail cell. Now, at this point in time, they had traveling judges. So Billy could have been sitting in jail for a few months waiting for a judge to come around, in which case he probably would have gotten nothing more than, you know, probably another warning, a slap on the wrist. You know, maybe they'd put him to work for a little bit, but Billy doesn't know this. And he's just a local kid, and the sheriff knows him, so when they put him in jail, they don't actually put him in a cell. They just kind of let him roam around in that area and don't really keep an eye on him. Well, the sheriff goes out to dinner on September 25th, just a couple days later. And when he comes back, 
Billy's gone. What he does is there, the sheriff is looking. He's like, how the hell did he get out of here? Well, what Billy does is he goes up the, the chimney. You know, they look up the chimney and they can see in the soot, they can see, you know, little hand and footprints going all the way up the chimney. Billy climbed his little body all the way up there, got out the top, jumped off the roof, stole a horse, and took off. But this also makes Billy a fugitive at the tender age of about 16. So it's a pretty interesting little story right there. Because, as you'll come to find, Billy is kind of the Houdini of the Wild West. This guy literally escaped so many times and got out of so much shit that it's honestly amazing. So what Billy does is he ends up going to Clifton, Arizona to try to track down William Antrim. Basically to take him in, to ask him for help, any kind of help that he has. Well, he does end up finding his stepfather... And, you know, he tells him what happened and his stepfather pretty much tells him to get the fuck out of there. And I don't want anything to do with you. Just leave. So Billy literally is on his own and he's on the run and unforgiving territory. And he is technically a fugitive. So the next time young Billy turns up is right around April of 1876 And he's hanging around uh, Camp Grant, Arizona, or Fort Grant, however you want to refer to it as. And he's working at a hotel there, washing dishes and cooking some food. A little place called the Hotel de Luna. Uh, This is where he meets up with a guy named John Mackey. And Mackey starts getting him into stealing horses and stealing saddles. And he's not just stealing them from anybody. He's stealing them from the soldiers who are based at that camp there in Arizona. This is where Billy starts really uh, getting into some trouble. Now, Billy is a horse thief, a saddle thief. He's stealing from the soldiers based at this camp there in Arizona. And this is where he starts uh, hanging out with a little bit of the rougher crowd. He's playing cards, he's gambling, he's drinking. And mind you... At this point in time, he's still merely right around 16 years old. So on March 25th, 1877, after months of doing this, uh, him and Mackie end up getting caught. They are confined at Camp Grant. Billy escapes later that night, and again, he is on the run. He doesn't uh, go very far, though. He still hangs out in that area. And on August 18th of 1877, this is where Billy officially kills his first man. Now the circumstances of this are extremely interesting because around Camp Grant, there's a, uh, there's a local blacksmith named Frank Cahill, known as Wendy Cahill. He was known to bully young Billy the Kid quite bad. Um, he would often throw him to the ground, he would open hand slap him in the face, he would humiliate him in front of everybody. Billy just kinda took it. Until August 18th, 1877, when they were playing cards, and, uh, Wendy Cahill refers to Billy as a pimp and a son of a bitch. Well, he throws Billy to the ground, from what witnesses say, about three times. And he takes his uh, knees and he pins them on Billy's shoulders. 
while Billy uh, is on the ground, back facing, you know, has his back to the ground. He's on the ground. He's got him pinned down, uh, and he's literally just open hand slapping Billy in the face, just being a total asshole. While here, they're kind of, you know, wrestling around a little bit, and Billy manages to get one of his arms free and uh, manages to grab a pistol. And he takes a shot and hits Cahill right in the gut. Now Cahill slumps over. You know, Billy kind of wiggles free. Now he takes off, gets the, onto the nearest horse that he can find, and starts riding off. And as luck would have it, the horse that he steals is a racing horse. So Billy is gone into the sunset. Now all these witnesses, there were several witnesses to this incident that said... This was a clear-cut case of self-defense. Literally, like, this guy had it coming. You know, what was what was Billy supposed to do? You know what I'm saying? The only person who did not think it was self-defense was the Justice of the Peace. Literally, everybody that was a witness, everybody that was asked, everybody that was there says it was a clear-cut case of self-defense. Billy had no choice. So, it doesn't take long for him to get captured by local soldiers. Now, the best part about this is, is because, like I said, Billy is, uh, you know, about 17, 18 years old at this point in time. And the soldiers take pity on him, because he tells them the story of what happened. So, they let him go. But, they tell him when they let him go, you are a wanted fugitive for murder. You know, whether it was in self-defense or not, you didn't stick around to find out. You didn't stick around to go to court. So technically, you are a fugitive wanted for murder. Billy doesn't care. He takes off and he leaves for New Mexico. Now, while he's on his way to New Mexico, I'm not 100% sure if it's in New Mexico or on his way there. He runs into some Apache, American Indians. These Apache take his guns, they take his horse... And they pretty much leave Billy for dead out in the middle of the desert. Now, I cannot stress enough, for those of you not familiar with the American Southwest, this is unforgiving territory. If you do not have food, water, a horse, uh, and a weapon of any kind, you will for sure fucking die. Alright? So, Billy's out here wandering around for a few days. Damn near close to death, and he stumbles upon a shack. I believe the shack is owned by the Joneses. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Well, this lady, the lady of the house, takes him in and pretty much nurses him back to health. Now, like I said, Billy was very, very close to death. He was extremely dehydrated at this point in time, and these Apache literally beat the hell out of this kid. So he gets nursed back to health, and they give him a horse. And tell him, you know, hey, you know, go ahead, get out of here, you know, do what you got to do. Uh, and it is at this point in time that Billy does um, change his name to William H. Bonney. So the next time he shows up is about a month later in uh, 1877. This is right around September. And he joins a little gang known as the Boys led by Jesse Evans. This gang is also known as the Jesse Evans Gang. And these dudes are legit. They are a gang of killers and rustlers. 
Now, Billy, who's no stranger to danger, he has nothing else to lose. He's a young kid, and he literally has to hold his own. He pretty much has to stake claim to a reputation that he is not one to be messed with. These guys are older. They've been around. These are some rough guys, okay? And Billy starts riding with these guys at about the age of 17 or 18. So the next time he shows up is October of 1877 when the boys ride into Lincoln County. And it is at this point in time that um, a man named Frank Coe actually uh, writes about Billy the Kid. And he what he writes about is his ability with pistols. It's really, really interesting because he's talking about how Billy can twirl his pistols while they are cocked, one in each hand, going the opposite way. Now... There's lots of stories out there about Old West gunslingers, but this is the first documented thing that I saw about Billy the Kid that someone actually commented on his abilities with the pistol and how fast he was and how skilled he was with them. Now think about it. Billy didn't have nothing else to do. He was out here doing his thing, fucking living his life, you know, and he he had a lot of time to get really good with those pistols. I would like to touch base a little bit on what's going on at Lincoln County at this point in time, all right? In the early 1870s, two guys named Lawrence Murphy and James Dolan opened the only store in all of Lincoln County. They call it the Murphy and Dolan Merchantile and Banking. Now, what they are doing is they have a shitload of cattle and a shitload of ranches, all right? And what they do is they get these government contracts. Now, they owned all the cattle, and they owned the only store that sells meat in all of Lincoln County. Now, to put this into perspective, Lincoln County at this point in time is the size of Ireland. This is a huge, massive county. And for them to own the only cattle, have a government contract, and own the only store that sells their own meat, they literally have a monopoly going on. They have bought all the local politicians. They have bought all the local law enforcement, which is only one guy. They have one sheriff in this entire county that goes by the name of Sheriff William Brady. Now, what Dolan and Murphy do is they form this faction, and they call it the House. Now, the House, because they literally are rich and extremely powerful, they control everything in Lincoln County. If you want to buy something, trade something, sell something in Lincoln County, you have to go through the house. And there's there's not much of anybody to stop them. They have everybody in their pocket. So what happens now is in February of 1877, an Englishman shows up in Lincoln County. Now besides the fact the English and the Irish are not exactly friendly in this county, I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but they do have their differences. This guy's name is John Tunstall. He's an English banker, and uh, he ended up coming from Victoria, British Columbia, and he wanted to invest in some cattle. He had some uh, money to invest somewhere, and he knew there was a lot of money in the cattle trade down in Lincoln County around the Pecos Valley area. So what... What he does is he hooks up with a guy named Alexander McSween. Now, McSween was a former lawyer for the house. 
I'm not exactly sure why he ended up wanting to leave the house and go into business with Tunstall, but that is how it happens. Now, what they do is McSween pretty much hooks him up with this guy named John Chisholm. Now, John Chisholm is a cattle baron. He is literally known as the king of Pecos Valley because he owns tens upon thousands of heads of cattle. When he moved cattle from the Pecos Valley, he moved a 100,000 head of cattle at a time. This is a lot of money right here, all right? And what he does is John Chisholm decides that he wants in on this too because he knows there's a lot of money to be made in Lincoln because as of right now, there's only one store there, which are owned by the house, Murphy and Dolan. Now, John Chisholm's wanting to expand, so he thinks it's a great idea to back McSween Tunstall. Not only does the House have the sheriff, the local politicians in their pocket, they also have the governor of the territory, a guy by the name of Governor Axtell, in their pocket as well. So they literally are doing whatever the fuck they want, whenever they want. And it is said that one of the reasons a lot of the locals, they hated the house. All the locals surrounding Lincoln County and in Lincoln County could not stand the house because it was a monopoly. They literally did whatever they wanted. Some of the lands in the surrounding areas, the house would write up fake foreclosure papers. They would act like they weren't getting paid. They would go foreclose on people's land, take their shit, take their assets. People hated the house. So when they see this competition opening up, naturally, they start going to that competition. Now, what the house does is they start putting a lot of political pressure on Tunstall and McSween. And they, uh, they, they do that through like bullshit, little court cases and everything like that, little political bullshit. But Tunstall, is a smart guy and he literally refuses to give in to them so at this point they start threatening violence all right so this is kind of where we jump back to the billy timeline because when they start threatening violence you know tunstall knows that he needs protection he has to hire some tough guys from the area this guy is way out of his element the way he did business was different than Dolan and Murphy. Dolan was known to literally kill anybody that got in his way. That's not how John Tunstall did shit. That's not how they did stuff in England at the time. Like I said, this was the American Wild West. There were no rules. Now, while all this inner fighting in Lincoln County, it's pretty much a merchant war. It's referred to as a cattle war, but it is technically a merchant war. Because in the fall of 1877... The house is losing a lot of money. They are almost struggling to stay afloat at this point in time because of the competition of Tunstall and McSween. Now, we jump back into Billy. This is October of 1877 when Billy and Jesse Evans and the boys gang ride back into Lincoln County. Now, right around in November of 1877, the boys are 
literally stealing cattle from anybody that they could. They were stealing cattle from the house side. They were stealing cattle from the Tunstall side. They were stealing cattle from John Chisholm. They did not give a shit. They were rustlers. They were killers. They were trying to make a living. So Billy gets caught stealing a couple horses from John Tunstall. Now it is right directly around this time, not 100% sure when, but Billy and Jesse Evans have a little bit of a falling out. Billy ends up getting caught stealing those horses from John Tunstall, so he ends up going to jail there in Lincoln County. Now while the threats of violence against John Tunstall start growing and growing, McSween suggests that, hey, you know, maybe you should hire some tough guys. Maybe you should hire some cowboys to help protect your ass, dude, because, you know, these guys are powerful men. They do not care. They have literally local law in their pocket. So John Tunstall goes to the Lincoln County Jail, and he gets Billy out. And he offers Billy a chance to work on his ranch. His official title was a cattle guard. He says, I'll give you a job. You can work the ranch. You offer me protection, basically as a bodyguard, and I will make sure that you are taken care of. And he gets Billy out of jail. Now, Billy agrees to this because this is a chance that he has really never been given before. You got to think of what this kid has been through in the last two, three years. This guy that he has no fucking idea who he is, is literally getting him out of jail after stealing his cattle and his horses. And giving him a job. So Billy wants to go straight. He's like, yeah, this this is a great opportunity for me to have like a a real job and and not do stupid shit anymore. So he gets uh he gets out of jail. Now John Tunstall gives him a horse and a rifle. There's a good possibility this is, you know, the first gifts that Billy the Kid has ever been given in his life. Okay. He's got this strange guy who he literally got caught stealing from who is giving him a job and all he's got to do is offer him a little bit of protection, guard some of his cattle. So he's just kind of thrown back by it. But because John Tunstall gave him this opportunity, despite who he was, Billy at this point in time just has gained so much respect. He respects John Tunstall like no other. It's it's a really cool thing. It's a really cool thing to get in depth with. Especially, you know, I'm no psychologist, but, you know, you got to put yourself in Billy's shoes right now. Now, Billy is not the only local gunslinger that Tunstall hires. He hires quite a few other guys as well, because he knows some shit is about to go down. Now, at the same time he's hiring all these gunslingers and guys to protect his cattle... The house is doing the same thing. Well, what the house does is they go and hire Jesse Evans and some of the boys gang that Billy used to ride with to do the same thing. Basically, be little bodyguards, offer protection, pretty much just go and do the dirty work. So like I had mentioned before, Billy literally walked into a really bad situation, but he made a friend in John Tunstall, somebody who believed in him and gave him a chance. So he is very, very loyal to the Englishman. Now, by February of 1878, the house is losing a lot 
of money to Tunstall and McSween's other store that they had opened up. They are hurting really, really bad. So what they do is they go to the local politicians, and here's why. The House is particularly mad at Alexander McSween at this point in time because Alexander McSween is the executor of a will of a deceased member of the House, a guy by the name of Fritz. Now, Dolan and Murphy had a $100,000 life insurance policy on this guy. And McSween refuses to sign off to pay the house the insurance money. Now, the house needs this money to stay afloat, so they take it to court. And, of course, the court is in the house's pocket, so they side with the house. McSween still refuses to sign off on this life insurance policy and award the money to the house. Because he knows the entire court case was total bullshit. Because all these dudes are still paid off. So this is when things start getting really, really hairy. On February 18th, 1878, the kid and some of the other ranch hands that Tunstall had hired and Tunstall himself are herding horses into Lincoln. This is like a whole day-long thing. Some say that there were some wild turkeys around, so Billy and a couple of the ranch hands rode off to go shoot some turkeys. And while they were off in the distance, they see Dolan and Sheriff Brady's men. Now, Tunstall, who is a pretty calm and collective guy, and unfortunately he thinks words can settle disputes in this land. And that cannot be further from the truth. Alright, so what happens is, Sheriff Brady's men, because what it was was Sheriff Brady organized a posse. He was the main organizer to go serve warrants to collect some of Tunstall's assets since McSween wasn't paying the $100,000 life insurance policy. It was basically a bunch of written up fake bullshit. It was just a way for the house to get back at Tunstall. Well, they go off and um, they go to serve these quote unquote warrants and uh, sees a bunch of his shit, well, Tunstall starts writing up to him. Now, Brady's men are quoted as saying, uh, wait till he gets a little bit closer. Now, when Tunstall is riding towards them to try to talk to them, he is shot one time with a rifle and knocked off his horse. At that point in time, one of the members of the posse walks up and puts a single shot in the back of Tunstall's head. Now, Billy and the rest of the guys see this, and not because Billy's a coward, but because he does have a little bit of common sense, they take off because they know there's nothing they can do. Otherwise, there's a good chance they're probably going to get killed too. Now, to add insult to injury, what they do is they not only shoot Tunstall, but they shoot his horse too, and they position them like they are taking a nap together just as a form of humiliation. They put a gun in Tunstall's hand, and they go back and say, well, he fired on us first, we had no other choice. And, of course, it's the law. The Sheriff Brady organized the posse, he had the law in their pocket, the house controlled everything, ran everything, so there was literally nothing that these guys could do. Now, while... Tunstall is being buried. Billy, a guy named Fred Waite, and a guy named Martinez, they attempt to serve warrants to the men who murdered Tunstall, 
but they are pretty quickly disarmed. They got their weapons taken from them, and Sheriff Brady throws them in jail. Now, Martinez is allowed to leave. Billy and Fred Waite are held prisoner until after Tunstall's funeral. They are released on February 23rd, 1878, after spending a couple days in jail. And it is said at this point, and it's unconfirmed, but I've read this in more than one place, that while standing over the grave of John Tunstall, Billy the Kid, known as William H. Bonney at this point in time, swears revenge on every single person that killed his friend. And that's pretty much what's about ready to happen. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, Tunstall's foreman was a guy named Dick Brewer. Dick Brewer was a very respected guy in uh, Lincoln County at this point in time. And he was also respected by Billy. He was a very level-headed, smart guy. He was a leader. He gets appointed a constable. And um, basically, they have a good enough argument to justify being able to serve warrants to have Tunstall's murderers arrested. So what happens is Billy the Kid and a bunch of other ranch hands are deputized. And what they do is they call themselves the regulators. Because they are going to go and they are going to serve out their own brand of justice. And they are going to regulate this shit. Now some of the known members of the regulators are Billy the Kid, Charlie Beaudry, Dick Brewer, who was the first leader, guy named Henry Brown, Jose Chavez Chavez, George Coe, Frank Coe, who I mentioned earlier, who was uh, one of the people who came out and mentioned and had written about Billy's uh, ability with the pistols, another guy named Jim French, and then Doc Skurlock. Now, together, these guys were the ones who formed the Regulators. These are the known members. There are uh, some that joined up later, specifically a guy named Tom O'Falliard, who does play a little bit of a role a little bit later on in the story. And then you have another guy who joined later on by the name of McCloskey. So within five days of the Regulators getting deputized... On March 6th, 1878, the regulators arrest Bill Morton and Frank Baker. Now what happens is, a few days later, the regulators pretty much come to the understanding that even if they go and take them to court, there's probably nothing going to be done about it, because these guys are members of the House. So they they realize that no punishment is ever going to come of this. Now, it's often said that Billy was the one who really wanted to, you know, just straight up kill these guys. That's totally unconfirmed. We don't know. Now, like I said, these guys really wanted to just kill Morton and Baker because they literally were two of the four-man posse that had gunned down Tunstall. Now, it is said that Billy was the one who was very vocal about just shooting them right on the spot. 
Now, Dick Brewer was a very level-headed guy. He uh, is very collective. He's like, no, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to take them in. They're going to stand trial. Well, what happens is they get about 15 miles outside of Lincoln County, and some shit goes down. We don't exactly know what happens. But Bill Morton, known as Buck, and Frank Baker are shot down, along with a guy named William McCloskey. Now, William McCloskey was a regulator, but he was also believed to be a traitor because he was very weird about a lot of his actions and the things that he said. And um, it is said that Billy kind of sniffed him out a little bit. Those guys never made it back to Lincoln County. They were shot dead. Now, even though the regulators did have warrants, they really didn't treat them as much as warrants as they did straight-up hunting licenses. It is said that they had a kill list, that they had a list of men that they were going to kill that were responsible for the death of John Tunstall, which you can take that as, you know, one way or the other, but that is what is stated. Now, on April 1st, 1878, good old April Fool's Day, some of the members of the regulators, who were Frank McNabb, Jim French, Fred Waite, John Middleton, Henry Brown, and of course, Billy the Kid, they're in Lincoln, and they see Sheriff Brady and his deputies. And one of his main deputies was George Hindman. Now, they see him, and they don't see Billy and the rest of the regulators, so what they do is the regulators are hanging out at John Tunstall's store, and they see the sheriff and his posse, his little posse and some of his deputies, like, start, you know, coming down the street or whatever. So they go hide in the alley beside Tunstall's store. And as Sheriff Brady and the rest of the group of his men are walking by, they unload a hailstorm of bullets on him. They shot Heinemann dead right there. Several other men were shot. Sheriff Brady himself was shot 11 times. But he did not die. He groaned a little bit on the ground and went to sit up, and he said, oh, he's like, I've been shot. And as soon as he moved and said he'd been shot, they unloaded another hailstorm of bullets on this dude. They said probably about a dozen more rounds hit Sheriff Brady. So he was pretty much, you know, off the charts at that point. And the regulators know that they're more than likely, their their deputization has run its course. Now, just three days later, on April 4th, 1878, the regulators end up finding another guy who was part of that little posse, a guy by the name of Buckshot Roberts, and they run into him at a place called Blazer's Mill. Now, this huge gunfight ensues. Now, Dick Brewer, the leader of the regulators and a man that Billy respected so much, is shot right between the eyes and killed, along with Buckshot Roberts, who also died. Now, Frank Coe, one of the regulators, had his trigger finger shot off, and John Middleton, also a member of the regulators, was wounded in that gunfight. And ironically enough, Dick Brewer and Buckshot Roberts were buried side by side, which is weird, but that's how it went down. A couple weeks later, on April 18th, 1878, Billy the Kid, John Middleton, and another guy by the name of Brown are in, and another guy named Henry Brown of the Regulators are indicted for the murder of Sheriff Brady. Now this makes them wanted men like no other. 
Now, these guys are seriously wanted at this point in time, and in the next month, May of 1878, Governor Axtell pretty much tells everyone to disarm and stop because shit is getting way out of hand, all right? Word has pretty much gotten to the President of the United States about the Lincoln County War that is going on right now. So Axtell, who literally is under the thumb of the House, nobody takes him seriously. Nobody listens to him. The fighting ensues. So on July 4th, 1878, the regulators go to hide at uh, Chisholm's Ranch, John Chisholm, who, if you remember earlier, he was a backer of McSween and Tunstall, so he was a friend to them. He offered them uh, a place to hide out, gave them a little bit of protection. So they hide out there for a couple weeks until shit dies down a little bit. And uh on July 15th, 1878, they ride back into Lincoln. Now, what happens next is some pretty messed up stuff. Now, this is referred to as the five-day battle for three days and nights straight. What happens is, is they are at Alexander McSween's home in Lincoln. This is uh, him and some of the regulators. They are found out to be there. It was pretty much what is suspected is that somehow they got coaxed into going there, that it was some kind of a trap. Now, what happens is the new sheriff, Sheriff Pippin, shows up and surrounds the house, but he is not alone. He shows up with the United States Cavalry, led by Colonel Dudley. Now, this is no bullshit. They have this entire house surrounded. You got McSween, you have McSween's wife, Susan, and you have their two kids in the house along with some of the regulators. And what the cavalry and the sheriff do is they set the house on fire to smoke them out. Now this fire is burning very, very slowly. You know, it doesn't get torched right away. Well, this is towards the end of the standoff. And on uh, July 19th, just four days after the initial gunfight started, and on a side note, this is really, really cool. Um, Susan McSween did survive this, and she probably survived this because of Billy himself. She goes on to talk later years about Billy's personality and says he is literally one of the sweetest guys she had ever met. She's like, the way he was portrayed um, in later books and by... You know, a lot of historians wasn't right. She's like, he was one of the nicest, most honest, loyal guys you could ever meet. But she goes on to tell a story that she had a grand piano in the house. And Billy knew that she loved this piano. So as the house is burning down room by room, Billy and the re and a couple other regulators kept moving this piano from room to room so that it would not get damaged by the fire which i thought was a really really cool story and i'm going to take that as fact because that is something that Susan McSween did say now like i had said on the on the fourth day of this standoff on July 19th 1878 it all comes to a head they need to get out of this house bad but above all else, Billy is very vocal on the fact that Susan and the kids need to get out of this house. They do not need to be in here. He doesn't care about himself. Now, 
During the standoff, Alex McSween, Francisco Zamora, and Harvey Morris are all killed on the regulator's side. Now on the Dolan side, a guy named Robert Beckwith is killed. And what ends up happening, how Billy gets away, is he calls for four volunteers. And I'm going to tell you right now, anybody that says Billy the kid was a coward has no idea what they were talking about. This dude had balls of steel. He straight up asked for four volunteers with him to be decoys so that Susan McSween and the kids can get out of this house. And I shit you not, while this house is burning to the ground, surrounded by U.S. cavalry and a shitload of sheriff's deputies, they come out the back door firing, and what they walk into is a hailstorm of bullets. Now, like I said... There were three people on the regulator side that did lose their life, Alex McSween being one of them. How Billy got out of this alive is beyond me. It's nothing short of amazing. Because literally, they walked out into a hailstorm of bullets. But Billy did get out. Uh, Susan McSween and the kids did end up living as well. Now, Billy does end up escaping. He goes down the riverbed up the other side and is pretty much gone. Now, to put this into perspective for you, Alexander McSween, when he came out of that house, was shot more than a hundred times. Just to put that into perspective, he was riddled with more than a hundred rounds. Billy and the other four decoys, Billy especially, was not even grazed. That right there is nothing short of simply amazing. Now, Billy does decide to get out of Dodge for a while. He goes to Texas where he's stolen some horses and they are, uh, you know, selling them to some dudes in Texas. Not much is really going on. On September 4th of 1878, Governor Axtell is removed from office and replaced by a guy named Lou Wallace. Now, a little history lesson for you. Governor Lou Wallace was an Indiana guy. He was a pretty shrewd guy. Um, and just a, a little side note, just in family history here, I have an ancestor that fought in the Civil War on the side of the Union. And he fought in the 100th Regiment out of Indiana Infantry. And his commanding officer was actually General Lou Wallace. So um, I thought that was pretty cool how all that kind of tied in together. But yeah, anyway, back to the story. Lou Wallace takes control of Lincoln County and that entire territory at this point in time. And from this point on, the House also knows, oh shit, you know, we don't have this dude paid off or anything. So maybe, you know, we need to start thinking a little bit of shit. So while he gets appointed a uh, new governor, right around sept the end of September in 1878, it is said on a side note that uh, another gang referred to as the Rustlers come through Lincoln County, and they're led by a man named John Selman. Now, what they start doing is stealing livestock, robbery, they kill any man or boy who gets in their way, along with raping women. Now, in early October... Billy is still in Texas selling some horses that he had previously stolen, but he decides uh, in about November to come back to Lincoln. Now, 
On November 13, 1878, Governor Wallace issues a proclamation of amnesty for all parties involved in the Lincoln County War. Now, what this means is that any person that had not formally been indicted on charges could come forward and be issued a pardon as long as all of the fighting stopped. Now, because of the murder of Sheriff Brady, Billy is exempt from this, and he knows that. So the kid ends up returning to Lincoln County in uh, early December of 1878. He's tired of running. He's tired of the bullshit. Even though he's good at living on the lam, he kind of like wants to make peace. So what he does is he writes a letter to his old gang buddy, Jesse Evans, and he kind of wants a truce. He writes a truce and they accept the offer. So on February 18th of 1879, the kid meets up with Evans in Lincoln, and they literally write up a contract for a truce. Now what happens is all these guys, now this is literally Dolan is involved in this as well. A peace treaty ends up getting formed. Like they literally lined up on each wall of the street, came together, shook hands, put their guns away, and, and a truce was formed. And what happens is um, they're drinking later that night. This truce does not last very long because they're in a bar drinking later that night. Along with this truce is uh, Susan McSween's attorney, a guy by the name of Houston Chapman. Now, they're all drinking, having a good time in the saloon, and Jesse Evans and some of the other boys are harassing uh, Houston Chapman, the attorney. And what happens is uh, James Dolan ends up shooting him and killing him right there on the spot. Now, after this, Billy is like, you know what? Fuck this. Like, there's no way we're going to end up being able to form any kind of truce out of this. So he gets out of Dodge. Now, about a month later, on March 13th, 1879, the kid ends up writing in one of his first letters to Governor Lew Wallace, and he states that he'll be willing to surrender and testify against Chapman's killers and Tunstall's killers for a pardon. Now, by doing this, he totally breaks the truce that was formed by Evans and Dolan and the regulators. And by breaking this truce, this is punishable by death. Now, the governor, on March 15th, 1879, just two days later, writes Billy the Kid back, telling them that he would like to meet with him to discuss the terms. And it's really cool, because at the end of this letter, he says, Governor Wall says, and I quote, If you can trust Jesse Evans, you can trust me, end quote. So another couple days later, on March 17th, 1879, the kid and the governor meet, uh, and an arrangement is made. And what it is, is Governor Lou Wallace wants to take him in for a fake arrest. Now, while this is going on, he would come in, he would testify in court against Dolan, Jesse Evans, and Colonel Dudley, and he would be pardoned. Now, like I said, Colonel Dudley was a cavalry um, officer who was involved in killing a couple innocent people, the main one being Alex McSween. And obviously, we know of Dolan, and we do know of Jesse Evans. So what happens uh, a few days later on March 21st, so what's supposed to happen is they are going to be quote-unquote fake arrested, 
and they are going to go into voluntary confinement. And this is kind of for their own protection. Now, Billy knows that if if something went wrong, he was pretty much writing his own death warrant at this point in time. Because he is testifying against these guys, he's breaking the truths. I mean, seriously, like, these guys are not people to turn your back on. To You can't trust them. You cannot trust them whatsoever. So on March 21st, Billy the Kid and one of the regulators, Tom O'Falliard, are arrested and brought to Lincoln. And uh, on April 14th, just about three weeks later, on 1879, the kid testifies in court against Chapman's murderers, which would have been Dolan and Jesse Evans. And then just another two weeks later, on May 28th of the same year, the kid goes on to testify against Colonel Dudley for his involvement in the siege of the McSween home. Now, as you can imagine, these guys were not found guilty. Absolutely none of them were found guilty because even though Governor Lou Wallace is not on the take of the house, the judge and the politicians still are. So these guys are found innocent. It was either innocent or a mistrial. I cannot remember specifically. So Billy never really gets his pardon. What happens is the judge in the case pretty much ignores the governor's pardon. And keeps Billy confined. Now he's sitting in jail. Voluntarily. For three months. Billy keeps writing him letters. You know saying hey you know. We need to talk about the pardon. I feel like I'm you know. You're pretty much screwing me over. To put it into context. But um, you know on June 17th. Uh, 1879. Billy simply got up. And walked out of jail. And rode off. And by October of 1879, he goes back to doing what he does best, living on the lamb and rustling. And the kid lives pretty quietly for the next couple of months until um, January 10th of 1880. A drunk guy in Fort Sumner, because this is where Billy's at, um, the people of Fort Sumner offered Billy a lot of protection. They hid him whenever he needed it because these were his people. Billy spoke fluent Spanish and uh, at this point in time he also had himself a little girlfriend by the name of Paulina Maxwell all right and these people around Fort Sumner fucking loved him he was pretty much their hero and the reason that he was their hero is because he was a one-man army against an entire corrupt political situation that were screwing all of these fucking people over I mean, I, I'm not going to go as far as say, you know, they fucking worship Billy or anything like that because that's fucking stupid. But they loved him. They gave him whatever he wanted. They offered him protection when they needed it. So this was his safe place. So on January 10th, 1880, there's some drunk guy hanging out at Fort Sumner named Joe Grant. Now, Joe Grant is supposedly a bounty hunter and he is on the hunt for Billy the Kid. Well, Billy knows this, alright? Now, he doesn't know what Billy looks like or anything like that. Now, the way the story goes is that Billy just kind of asks him to see his gun. And what he does is he takes his gun and um, kind of moves the chamber. Because what you did um, with a six-shooter is you kept one chamber empty, 
that way your you know your pistol wouldn't misfire you know these weren't the the greatest weapons on earth even though they were seriously reliable well what billy does is he adjusts it to where that empty chamber is the next one out and uh he pretty much just uh starts a fight with with old joe grant here now when billy turns his back he hears the gun go click and at that point in time, Billy turns around, puts his pistol under Joe Grant's chin, and pulls the trigger three times. Now, how much of that is truth, we're not too sure. I've heard anywhere from one time he shot him to three times. But Billy did definitely kill that dude. And he goes back to doing the same shit that he's always been doing. You know, he's just hanging out for almost a year there in Fort Sumner. And uh on October 6th in 1880... The kid is really getting tired of living outside the law. He's tired of dodging the law. He's tired of being on the lam. And he writes to a guy named Ira Leonard, who is a lawyer. And he's saying that he wants to try straightening things out again with Governor Wallace. Now, he agrees to meet him in White Oaks within a week. Um, unfortunately, it takes Billy six weeks to get there. So pretty much Ira Leonard tells him to screw off. The deal is off. Now, about a month later, on November 2nd, 1880, Governor Lou Wallace gets a hold of a guy named Pat Garrett. Pat Garrett is officially elected sheriff of Lincoln County. And how this happens is Billy is running around Fort Sumner. And um, if you remember John Chisholm, Billy starts stealing his fucking cattle. I'm not exactly sure why, because he had a lot of it. There is probably hard to keep track of, but Billy starts stealing John Chisholm's cattle. Now, John Chisholm was supposed to be a friend, so Chisholm is like, listen, this little asshole needs to be dealt with. So what Chisholm does is he backs Pat Garrett as sheriff, and with backing like that, you can almost guarantee that Pat Garrett was not going to lose that election. Now, the stipulation was, is that Pat Garrett's first order of business had to be to eliminate the man known as Billy the Kid. You know, that was supposed to be his main order of business. Now, before we go any further, I do have to take a break. I got to play a couple commercials here real quick. I got to go grab another beer. So you guys sit tight for about roughly a minute to a minute and a half. Go refill your drinks. I'll be right back. Alright, so to give you guys a little bit of history on Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett, yes, there was a previous friendship there. The extent of it is not really too well known, but they did ride together and they were friends. Now, um, in part two, we'll touch base a little bit on Pat Garrett's past, where he came from, how he ended up being sheriff, and all that good stuff. But the extent of their relationship is in Lincoln County, Pat Garrett was a uh, bartender at a saloon that uh, Billy the Kid used to frequent all the time. Now, they ended up hanging out for about a year. They were supposedly really good friends. Uh, they actually gave each other nicknames. Uh, Pat Garrett was known as Big Casino. Billy the Kid was known as Little Casino. And the reason they got these nicknames is because Pat Garrett was a lanky-ass six-foot-four dude. Billy the Kid, full-grown was about five foot seven, no more than a hundred and forty pounds soaking wet. So they gave each other those nicknames. Another set of nicknames after Pat Carrot became sheriff was um 
Pat Garrett used to refer to him as a little asshole, and uh, Billy the Kid used to call him the old woman, which I find very fucking amusing. I, I don't even know why. So while Billy is in White Oaks, like I said, he shows up six weeks late for his uh, meetup with uh, the lawyer Ira Leonard. While he's there, a posse finds out that he's there, and they surround him at this place called the Great House Ranch. Now, during this little standoff... A guy named uh, James Carlyle, who was a deputy, uh, is said to have been killed by his own men. Now, Billy did get blamed for this murder, and a lot of the people involved on Billy's side do say, you know, hey, like, Billy didn't do this. This guy was not killed by him. A lot of the uh, posse, after James Carlyle did die, um, pretty much disbanded. They took off. Which would honestly lead you to believe that it is a good possibility that they, he was killed by his own men. Um, now, later on, Billy would go on to say, uh, quote, there's more about the killing than people known. Which means, you know, hey, there's a lot of shit going on to where, you know, you guys just don't understand what exactly happened. And that's true. Nobody really knows. Now, this happened on... November 27th of 1880, all right, about, you know, three weeks after Pat Garrett gets elected sheriff. Now, on December 12th, 1880, the kid writes Governor Walsh again. This time, he's pleading for his innocence and concerning the death of Deputy Carlisle um, and some of his rustling activities in the territory because Billy is really kept pretty quiet up until this point, you know, and Governor Walsh pretty much ignores him. He does not write him back. So on December 14th, 1880, Sheriff Garrett finds out that Billy the Kid more than likely is in back in Fort Sumner. And uh, he forms a posse and they start the hunt for Billy the Kid. Now around December 14th, 1880, uh, Pat Garrett and a posse begin the official hunt for Billy the Kid. He hears word that he might be in Fort Sumner and he's like, well shit, I know people there. My wife is from Fort Sumner, so we should have no problem tracking him down. And the very next day, Governor Lou Wallace puts out a $500 reward for the kid's capture. Now, a little bit of background on Pat Garrett. You know, a lot of his history aside, Pat Garrett is a pretty bad compulsive gambler, all right? He's always losing money. He's always in debt. So he sees his 500 bucks, and he's pretty much all about it, all right? So on December 19th, 1880, they're in Fort Sumner, and Pat Garrett and his men are stationed out there, okay? Now just imagine this, picture this for one minute. It's a full moon outside. It's dark out. There's about three inches of crisp snow on the ground, and you see this gang down the side of this hill, single file, and Pat Garrett's like, I, I know this is the kid. I know he's got to be leading these guys. So he signals for his posse to start shooting. And they start shooting. The only person that gets hit is a guy named Tom O'Folliard, who is a member of the Regulators. Now, they pretty much see the extent of the damage of, of Tom O'Folliard, and they keep going. They pretty much leave him for dead. Now, the other Regulators escape, and... uh Pat Garrett and his, and his posse are like, shit, you know, we didn't kill him. We killed the wrong guy. 
Now, a few days later, about four days later, on December 23rd in 1880, they end up tracking Billy the Kid and his gang to um, this tiny little rock hut, basically right around a place called Stinking Springs. Now, what happens here is Pat Garrett is like, listen, we fucked up the first time. We shot the wrong guy. I know Billy the Kid. I know what he looks like. I know what he wears. You wait for my signal so we don't make another mistake. And what happens is Charlie Beaudry comes out the front. Now, Billy had a very specific hat that he used to wear. He used to wear this, um, like, smaller-sized sombrero with, like, a green band around the head part of it. Well, it just so happens that Charlie Beaudry was wearing the same type of hat, and he comes out, and they think it's the kid. So, Pat Garrett gives the order to fire. He gives the signal, and they shoot Charlie Beaudry down. All right. Now, this is after a little bit of a standoff. They had a standoff for probably a good day. And uh, the whole time, Billy's just taunting Pat Garrett. I'm not even going to bullshit you. He knows that if he walks out of there, he's either getting killed or he's getting taken back to Lincoln, charged with murder, and going to be hanged. But he's sitting there fucking around with Pat Garrett, just blowing him shit. After the death of Charlie Beaudry, which really affected Billy the Kid, because think about it this way. The only people in Billy the Kid's life that ever showed him respect or ever cared about him for that matter were his mother, John Tunstall, Dick Brewer, McSween, Charlie Beaudry, and Tom O'Falliard. They've all been killed. Billy has pretty much nothing. So after a little while, he does end up surrendering. Now, in between this time of uh, Christmas of 1880 and about March 28th of uh, 1881, Billy the Kid is being transported for trial. And this whole time, he's writing letters to Governor Lou Wallace again. And at one point, he even threatens to expose the letters that Governor Lou Wallace had written him two years earlier about the pardon that he was promised that he was never given. And um, Billy is really, really frustrated at this point in time because he thought he could trust this guy. He literally promised him a pardon if he testified against all these people, and he did not follow through with it. Billy put his life on the line. And I know some of you are sitting there like, the dude's a stone-cold killer. All right. You know what? Yeah, he is. But when you're promised a pardon to testify against people that will literally shoot you in the fucking face as soon as you walk out of the courtroom, that's kind of not right. You know what I mean? That's uh, not how the government, when they offer you a pardon, is is not supposed to work that way. Now, what happens is um, he knows that he's running out of time and he's on thin ice so on march 30th in 1881 the kid's first trial for killing buckshot roberts goes ahead and commences about seven days later uh the case is dismissed due to a technicality now two days after that on april 8th 1881 the kid's second trial commences for the killing of sheriff brady the very next day, on April 9th, 1881, the kid is found guilty of first-degree murder and his sentence to death by hanging. Now think about this for a second. Out of all the people involved in the Lincoln County War, 
the one guy on the losing side who was involved in every single little gunfight, the one guy on the losing side is the only person to have ever been convicted of any crimes involved in the Lincoln County Wars. Everybody else that were actually tried in a court of law were all acquitted or pardoned. Does that seem fair to you? Because it honestly does not seem very fair to me. Literally, during the Lincoln County War, roughly 75 to 80 people died. And Billy the Kid was the only person who was convicted and given a sentence. That right there is pretty fucked up, if you ask me. Now, Billy the Kid is sentenced to hang on May 13th between the hours of 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Now, he is sentenced on April 13th of 1881, so he knows he's roughly got about a month to live. Now, on April 21st of 1881, the kid arrives back in Lincoln and is jailed in the local courthouse. Now, while he's there, he's jailed by two local deputies, one of which being J.W. Bell and the other one being a guy named Bob Ollinger. Now, the whole time Billy is in jail, um, he's waiting to be hanged. Uh, Pat Garrett is pretty much out of town at this point in time. He is the only sheriff in the county, so he's out doing other shit. He's collecting taxes, and he's also collecting wood to build the gallows for Billy the Kid, his at one point in time friend. So what happens is while he's in jail the whole time, this guy Bob Ollinger just keeps harassing the shit out of him. While he's confined, Bob Ollinger keeps telling him, hey, I got this brand new shotgun. He's sitting there cleaning this shotgun, just looking at Billy the Kid, literally begging him to try to escape. He's like, please, please escape. He's like, I got this brand new shotgun. He's like, I want to use it on you. He's like, I want to kill you so bad. And Billy the Kid literally is just not even really phased by it. If for some odd reason in Billy the Kid's brain, he's pretty much gotten out of any situation imaginable. He's escaped from jail numerous times. He's walked away from gunfights unscathed. So he's always an optimist. He's always got it in the back of his mind like, I will get out of this. I will find a way. So what happens is... Bob Ollinger puts his shotgun in the arsenal, and he takes a couple other prisoners over across the street to the restaurant to get some dinner for the night. Now, this is about right around 6 p.m., I believe. So he's gone, and, and J.W. Bell is a younger deputy, and he's tasked with guarding Billy the Kid. Now, the next events are not exactly known. There's two different stories, one of which being... Billy asks to go to the bathroom, which would be outside in the outhouse. Now, one story goes is that a local sympathizer, because these people still did not like the house at all, hit a gun in the outhouse for him to break out of jail with. And uh, while he was in the outhouse, he managed to get one of his shackles off his hands. Now, historically, you know, what you see... And the movie Young Guns is pretty fucking right. He had big wrists and very small girly hands. So this dude was able to slip out of shackles fairly easily, alright? 
So while he's in the outhouse, somebody either planted the gun, we don't know, but at, we do know that he ma- manages to get one of his uh, hands out of the shackles. Now the other part of the story is, is that he does go to the outhouse, gets his hand out of the shackles, but while he gets back into the jail, um, the other half of the story is that he literally takes J.W. Bell's gun out of his holster and uses it on him. Now, J.W. Bell is shot through the chest and the hole goes right through him into the wall. There is also another part of the story that says Billy kind of fired like a, like a warning shot to J.W. Bell and the bullet ricocheted and, uh, hit him in the chest. Personally, that one is not very believable, but, um, it is one of the other stories out there. The local people hear this gunshot and the first thing that they think is that Bell shot the kid. While Bob Ollinger is coming across the street from the restaurant, um, uh, J.W. Bell is stumbling out the front door of the courthouse, and he falls face down dead right there on the street. Now, there was a witness at the scene, uh, a guy by the last name of Goss. Now, what he says is that um, Bob Ollinger comes walking across the street. After he shot Bell... Billy the Kid goes and he gets that shotgun from the arsenal that Bob Ollinger was taunting him with. And he sits on the second story where his cell is and just crouches down below the window. And as Bob Ollinger's walking across the street, he sees J.W. Bell fall flat face in the middle of the street dead. Now, this guy Goss goes on to say, and he was a witness... Bob Ollinger's like, what the hell happened? You know, did did Bell shoot the kid? This other guy comes forward and says, no, he shot Bell. He shot shot the deputy. Right about then, Bob Ollinger sees Billy the Kid pop up from the second story window. He hangs the shotgun out the window, looks at Bob, points that double barrel shotgun right at him and says, hello, Bob. And at that point, Bob says, well, shit, he just killed me too. Billy the Kid pulls the trigger, puts 18 buckshot in Bob Ollinger's chest and face. He falls flat dead. Now, at this point in time, obviously, the people in town are shitting their pants. They're like, what in the hell is going on? Billy the Kid's about to go free. Billy the Kid steps out onto the second floor balcony outside the courthouse, and he proceeds to address the people standing out there. And he explains, hey, like I had to do this. You guys don't understand that I was promised a pardon that was never given to me. He's like, I'm not supposed to be in this situation. I was never supposed to be put on trial. So as long as you guys just let me do my thing and let me go, we will not have any problems. But I do need a horse. So he has one of the local guys get him a horse. And while he's doing that, he uh, packs up two pistols, a Winchester rifle, and a shitload of ammo. Now, he tells the guy who he got the horse from, he literally tells him, I will make sure this horse makes it back here. He's like, I only need to borrow this. I'm not going to steal it. And ironically enough, a couple days later, that horse does show back up in Lincoln County with a rope, uh, the rope still around its neck. It's not really known whether uh, Billy the Kid sent it back or if uh, he fell off the horse and then the horse came back. But uh, that's just a little side fact right there. There's no turning back for Billy. There's a cool little story, you know, that one of 
that one of the the local guys goes to reach for his pistol while Billy's up there on his balcony and his wife looks at him and is like, no, dude, (laughs) no, that's Billy the Kid. You're not getting shot down. Get your damn hand off your six shooter, you know, so they let him ride off. And at this point in time, there's no turning back for Billy. He is just shot two cops and he is on the run. Now, at this point, everybody thinks Billy's got to be heading to Mexico. He has at least a day or two head start on Pat Garrett. So Pat Garrett really doesn't proceed to look for him because anybody in their right mind knows Billy's not going to stick around. He's going to fucking Mexico and you're never going to see him again because don't ever forget. Billy spoke fluent Spanish. He was protected by the Mexicans, by the Hispanics down there, because he was revered as a hero. He could have gotten away so easily, but he didn't. He goes right back to Fort Sumner. He ends up going north. There are a couple suggestions of why he did not go to Mexico. But one of them is because of Paulita Maxwell. Billy the Kid was supposedly pretty madly in love with this woman and let's you know let's be real you know billy is is 21 years old at this point in time he's still a fucking kid but instead of going to mexico he goes back to fort sumner so on april 28 1881 billy escapes there's a lot of rumors about billy being in fort sumner all right Pat Garrett keeps hearing these rumors, but he's not really paying any attention to them until a lot of people start blowing him a bunch of shit saying, oh, man, you you know, you know, we all know where he is. He's back at Fort Sumner. There's reports of him being around there. We have people saying that he's there, you know, and they start telling Pat Garrett that, oh, you must be scared of him. That's why you're not going to get him because you must be scared of Billy the Kid. So Pat Garrett does end up going to Fort Sumner with a few deputies to look for Billy the Kid. And on July 14th, 1881, one night, Billy the Kid is in Fort Sumner. Now, Pat Garrett gets there before him. Um, He meets up with a guy named Pete Maxwell, who uh, is the older brother of Paulita Maxwell. Pete is pretty much offering him a lot of information. Now, what it said is, uh, you know, Billy comes into town, and he's pretty much looking for some food. He had been out on the trail for a couple days at this point, from what I understand. And he's looking for some food, and somebody directs him over to Pete Maxwell's house, saying, oh, he just, he just killed a, you know, he just killed some cattle. He's got some uh, beef hanging up. You know, you can go over there and get some fresh meat. So Billy the Kid goes over there. Now he goes over to Pete's house, and he notices that it's all dark inside Pete Maxwell's house. Now, Pat Garrett and Pete Maxwell are in his bedroom, are in Pete Maxwell's bedroom. Now, Pat Garrett and Pete Maxwell are in Pete's bedroom talking about Billy the Kid, where he's been, when he's coming back, and they hear it. They hear a voice going, Guinness, Guinness, because Billy shows up at this door and he can't tell who's inside it. And all Pete Maxwell and Pat Garrett can see is a silhouette of a man pretty much shrouded by the moonlight that should be known and even pat garrett says that in his book that they could not see exactly who it was because all they saw was a silhouette 
while Pat Garrett is sitting kind of on his holster, pulls out his gun, fires one round, hits Billy right above the heart. Second round he fires, misses, goes into the wall. Billy the Kid drops dead right there where he stood. It is still debated to this day whether or not Billy the Kid actually had a weapon in his hand. Some say that he did have his pistol out, others say that it was a knife in his hand. Because Billy walked up to this door not wanting to shoot a friend. So a lot of people say that he actually did holster his pistol and had a knife in his hand instead because he didn't know who was in this room. Now obviously about a year later, Pat Garrett co-authors a book called The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid. Now if you think about this for a second, how would you like it if your murderer got to write your biography? They could literally say whatever they wanted to about you, stretch the truth, make themselves look a lot better. Now this is pretty much where the story of William H. Bonney ends and the legend of Billy the Kid begins. Now you'll hear a lot of people say, well, there's a lot of rumors flying around that maybe Billy the Kid wasn't shot that night. Maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it was uh, Billy's good friend, a guy named Billy Barlow, who looked exactly like him. A lot of the locals said that Billy's body had a darker complexion than what he had actually looked like, suggesting that maybe it was a local from that area who was shot and not Billy. And this is where we start to think about part two. Because there's a lot of speculation out there that says that was not Billy the Kid that died that night. And as a matter of fact, the first deputy of Pat Garrett's that ran up and saw the body and says, You shot Billy the Kid. You shot Billy the Kid. After he runs up to the body, he says, That's not Billy the Kid. You shot the wrong guy. Now this deputy ended up writing some memoirs not too long after that about his life. And he would claim that Pat Garrett shot the wrong guy until the day he died. Is there motivation for Pat Garrett to uh, claim that he shot Billy the Kid, collect reward money, and tell Billy to get the fuck out of town? If he even talked to Billy? Yeah, there is a lot of motivation there. Pat Garrett was in debt up to his eyeballs. He was a compulsive gambler. That $500 reward in sales from a book would have gone a long way for Pat Garrett. Now in part two, we will touch base on Brushy Bill Roberts, who was found in the late 40s and claimed to be Billy the Kid. But not only did he claim to be Billy the Kid, three of Billy the Kid's surviving friends identified him. He escaped from shackles. He had the same scars as Billy the Kid. This story started immediately after Billy the Kid was shot. And specifically, 18 months after Billy the Kid was supposedly shot, there's another man who pops up out of absolutely nowhere. And his name is not Brushy Bill Roberts. So if you guys want to dive deep into some shit, join me in part two. And I really hope you guys enjoyed part one. Till next time, I will see you on the flip side. 
All right, going to do a few quick reviews here. Um, probably only going to do maybe like four or five or something like that. I'm going to do them in the order that they came in from the last time I did reviews. So, of course, first one is a uh, one star from Justice1969. It says, Immature Host. I was a fan until I heard you rant about a bad review someone left. It was weird, and you sounded drunk and ridiculous. Can't find the episode, so maybe it was deleted. Not sure why I'm leaving this, because you said you don't care about ratings. Grow up and get over it. I'm out. Peace. Well, yeah, you're you're pretty much right, but no, I did not delete it. So, I guess that uh, kind of says something about your observation skills. So, yeah, whatever. Bye. Um, next one is uh, Lauren from SoFlow, which is a new patron. Which, by the way, I did not mention... Uh, patrons, I think I said it at the beginning of this episode, patrons will be the ones choosing the Patreon episodes. So, get a hold of me, tell me what you want to hear. Um, says five stars, velvety smooth voice. Thank you, Justin, for your gift to mankind. I'm still trying to get through all your podcasts. You have so many. Yes, this, uh, episode right here, the Billy Kid Part 1, will be episode number 72. Um, I wanted to thank you for putting out a wonderful, fact-filled, unpolished show, which is the best. Thanks for telling the stories I don't hear on every other podcast. I feel like I get an interesting lesson uh, that I would never normally get. Thank you. And then a bunch of exclamation points. Um, Lauren from SoFlo, thank you. I appreciate that immensely. That was a very nice thing to say, especially about my velvety smooth voice. Uh, next one is from a cold case murder mystery podcast. And for those of you who have not listened to that show, please do. It is fucking awesome, dude. I mean, it's, it's an amazing show. Just check it out. Um, this one says too many shows simply regurgitate the Wikipedia page when covering true crime cases, paranormal events, and similar Justin goes deeper in mysterious circumstances, getting out the shovel and digging into the heart of the matter where we find the truth. Excellent research and hosting on display here. Highly recommended. Man, that was a fucking good one right there. Next one up is uh, Pink Spider. Five stars. Perfectly awesome. I appreciate so much the effort, the level of detail and research that Justin puts into his episodes. That combined with the relaxed conversational type delivery makes this podcast one of my very favorites. I am actually a long-time listener, and I apologize for taking so long to leave my review, Heidi. Well, Heidi, you don't have to apologize at all. Um, reviews are not required. You know, they are appreciated. But just the fact that you have been listening for so long, and I know you do follow me on Instagram now, so I do see you out there. Um, thank you for taking the time to to uh, rate and review me. I do appreciate that. I love hearing what everybody has to say about the show. Um, next one would be five stars from Jen HT says, love this podcast. I get really excited when I see it has downloaded. Justin tells stories you don't hear anywhere else. He's a great storyteller. He's a great storyteller. Very conversational. I love his facts and theories. Please give it a listen. Jen HT. Thank you for that. You are fucking awesome. Uh, those were all from the USA. Uh, we're going to switch over here to the UK because I do have a few here. Um, Mel W. Baker. 
Five stars says enthralling. So the host might not be for everyone until you've given him a chance. His facts are solid, his storytelling perhaps unconventional, but he swear but he swears where you would do so yourself. He's unscripted, so he goes so he goes with what he factually knows. But the uh but he indubitably knows his stuff. Uh definitely my top three. Well, goddamn, I tell you what, I'm happy to be any in anybody's like top fifty because, you know, when we when people put me in the true crime true crime genre, they're putting me in there with about I don't know two thousand other fucking podcasts nowadays. So I fucking cannot thank you enough. Next one would be from UK as well, and uh, ugh, shit. Okay, it's either f- Fubist or Pubist. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. I don't want to fuck it up because he left me five stars. And it says, catch you on the flip side. It says, uh, if you enjoy listening to a detailed true crime podcast, well-researched and presented, but with a natural humorous style, then this is for you. Justin has a wonderfully evocative voice, and he makes you feel like he's talking just to you. And that is exactly right. That's exactly the way I wanted this podcast. And I'm so glad that people appreciate it. It honestly blows my fucking mind every day that that people listen to this shit. Um, next, we are going to Australia for a few. Um, this one is Ozzy Girl 45025 five stars as one of the best. Says, I accidentally discovered this podcast and have binge-listened my way through every wonderful episode. The host offers thought-provoking and interesting opinions on every case. I can tell by the way um, each new episode is presented that it's backed up with excellent facts and research. And goddammit, thank you very much. By the way, Australia apparently is loving the shit out of me lately. I showed up the other day at about number 20 on the iTunes charts down there, so they're loving me more than America is right now. Hear that, America? Anyway... Thank you very much, Ozzy Girl. That is, um, I appreciate the shit out of that. And uh, I love hearing it when people say they accidentally discovered me because in April I will have been doing this for two years now. (laughs) So it's kind of nice when you accidentally discover a podcast and there's a huge backlog. So thank you, Ozzy Girl. I appreciate that. Next up is Disappointed Farmer. Five stars, brilliant show. Awesome podcast. The audio quality is brilliant now. I'm so glad I stuck with it and listened to all the episodes. Each episode is really well-researched and thought-provoking. Justin's accent is awesome, and he speaks his mind without censorship. I can't rate it highly enough. Well, goddammit, disappointed farmer. I fucking... I love that. That right there hit me right in the feels. Love it. Um, next one is uh, Pungoor. I hope I said that right. Uh, five stars says really good cases. I like the time and effort this guy puts into making his podcast entertaining. I appreciate his efforts. Just wish he could curb his swears. You know, some episodes I do swear more than others. Um, you know, I, I guess it is what it is. You got to take the good with the bad. But, um, you know, I'm trying to curb it just a little bit. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much for taking the time to leave that review. Um, next one is Ella Shatilla Matisse, or Ella 
Chatila Matisse. Five stars. Fantastic. I hope I didn't fuck your name up. I am so sorry if I did. Says really like this podcast. The narrator is dry and honest, which is a good fit for the topics discussed. Keep the episodes coming. I am very dry and sarcastic. Some people, uh, it throws some people off because they think I'm being serious a lot of times, especially in my group. I actually had uh, Lauren who said the other day, she's like, wow, you're a lot, you're a lot more awesome than you put off on your uh, podcast. And it's like, yeah, I'm a pretty cool motherfucker, but yeah, I'm pretty dry and sarcastic. So I'm glad that you caught that and you can appreciate that. And the episodes will always be coming. Thank you very much. Um, and I do have one from Canada. Baby Cakes won five fucking stars. Says love it. Says, I found this podcast recently and have been binging on the episodes ever since. Great stories. I even love the occasional mild cuss. Great job. Keep them coming. Baby Cakes, first of all, I love your username. That's fucking great. Uh, second of all, that's the best part about it. I get half my reviews that say to quit cussing or curb it. I get the other half that say they love the occasional mild cuss, so... Thank you, Baby Cakes. I appreciate that. Um, I can't even thank you enough for taking the time. Uh, that's all I'm going to do for now. So um, I do have a shitload more reviews in the USA that I have to go through. But I am uh, kind of just letting them, letting them accumulate. And I'll do two or three an episode uh, after the show is over. So for those up for those uh reviews that I did just read right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I cannot thank you enough. And I'll see you on the flip side.